Good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works and to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns has aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And just a reminder, in these pandemic conditions, this show has been recorded ahead of time and no calls are being taken. I hope you'll stay with us then for a wonderful conversation about Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. And um, with us today via Zoom, we have a number of folks who can help us understand um, the origins of the National Monument and what's going on now. Uh, Joining us are Lucas St. Clair. Um, uh, Lucas, you were part of the original uh, group that that uh, had uh, access to land and then said, let's let's talk about um, a national monument or national park. Welcome. Glad you could be with us. Thanks. It's great to be here. Andrew Bossi is the executive director of a group called Katahdin, uh, Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters. Um, we'll get, come, come to you in a few minutes, Andrew, but I'm so glad you could be with us. Nice to see you again, Ron. Tim Hudson is the uh, Katahdin Woods and Waters Park Superintendent, and we'll f- come to learn more about how the Woods and Waters National Monument is staffed and what's um, some of the um, issues and concerns that, that Tim brings to the table. Glad you could be with us, Tim. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Jennifer Nepkun is a um, Penobscot uh, tribal member. Um, she works for the tribe. She's an artist, um, and she's also a, a registered Maine guide. Glad you could be with us, Jennifer, this, mo- this afternoon. Happy to be here. Thank you. And uh, Jennifer uh, is, is joined also by Lindsay Hill Downing, who's the owner of Mount Chase Lodge in Mount Chase, Maine. So glad you could be with us. Thanks for including me. So let's let's um, ask each of you to introduce yourselves. Um, Lindsay, can we start with you? Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you kind of connected to Katahdin Woods and Waters. Sure. Um, so I grew up here at Mount Chase Lodge, actually. My parents ran this business for... 40 years. They purchased it in 1976 and, uh, and we're here all the way through to 2016. Um, so I grew up here. This is my backyard. I've, I've seen this area in the highs and the lows of the mills closing and everything that was kind of around the time I, I went to college. Um, never did I imagine that I would want to return to the Katahdin region because we, I left at a pretty low point when Everybody seemed to be leaving and there wasn't much opportunity. Um, so I traveled around a little bit, found myself always wanting to come back to back to Mount Chase and uh, was always dreaming about the lodge and met, met my match who happened to be a fantastic cook and everything else that it takes to run a place. And uh, I convinced him that this would be a great, a great fit for us. Um, at the time, the, National Monument campaign was was going right along. Um, we we saw a, a pretty big opportunity there, and and knew that if that were to happen, uh, if, that if this land were to be designated a national monument or a national park, that that would mean we would have a pretty 
a pretty good business under us um, where we could, we could create a pretty good business. And so we jumped on board with supporting it right from the get go and, and uh, have continued to do so right up through. And it's been so, so awesome to be a part of it all the way through from the day it was designated in 2016. And I still remember it clear as day um, and the anticipation of, you know, hoping that it was going to be designated, but not really knowing for sure. But then it, you know, it was, it was just a really awesome day. And then uh, the, the four years afterwards have just been just so, so awesome to witness and, and be here front hand because people are coming and people are seeing it. And, you know, the monument is obviously, everybody's working really hard to make improvements and um, it's just been awesome to see it grow. Um, and to be a part of the community where, where that it's benefiting is also really neat too, because not only are we, uh, preserving this land, but all of the communities around have kind of gotten a kickstart now, um, as far as how, how do we make it work up here? You know, we don't have the mills anymore, but, but we have a, a national monument. We have a state park. We have things, landmarks that people want to come visit. So let's, let's work with that. So great. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, you represent the um, the kind of the long term stewards of this land that we're talking about. Um, talk about your connection to um, the the national monument um, as you've come to see it develop. So, our people, the Penobscot Nation, have a really long history since the, when the glaciers started to retreat. Our ancestors you know, started to use that area. And some of the archaeology dates back to about 11,000 years for the time that, you know, our people have been there and been using it. The um, National Monument falls within our traditional territory for the Penobscot Nation, but that area is also really important to other Wabanaki tribes um, throughout what's now Maine and Canada. Uh, Mount Katahdin is one of the most sacred places to all of our people. And the Penobscot River was a major travel route. So, you know, that area is important to a lot of people. For us, um, the tribe has over 12,000 acres of trust land from Matagammon to Grindstone along that area too. So from the beginning, the tribe took a big interest in that and has been supporting the effort, you know, from the start. And, you know, we were really relieved when it got the designation. And, and when Zinke came, we even sent um, representatives from the tribe to paddle with him in hopes of, you know, hoping that it would help him to, <laughs> to keep the designation when he was doing the reviews. So a real important area. Great. We'll come back to you, of course, during the rest of the, the program. Um, Lucas, let's go, go to you now. Um, what was the, the dream for um, protecting this land? How did, it, how did you get involved? What was your connection to it? Well, you know, I, I, I'm a huge fan of public lands in general and spent a lot of time in, uh, you know, recreating, hunting, fishing, biking, hiking on America's public lands. And, um, and this was a real vision of my mother's who in 2012 offered me an opportunity to help work on the establishment of the monument. And really that meant getting public support, 
the White House had signaled to us that you know, they couldn't really do anything unless there was, you know, people in the community wanted it. And it was really, it had to be a, a grassroots effort and it had to be locally supported. And at the time it wasn't. And so uh, I, you know, I grew up up in, in Northern Piscataquis County and spent most of my life recreating in and around Baxter and um, just thought what a great opportunity to have more places to recreate in, in the North woods. And so spent, uh, the better part of five years working on the designation uh, and got to meet incredible people and, you know, really fell in love with, uh, with the communities that surrounded the, the monument. You know, I, I knew the land was beautiful. I knew it, it, had, it was really special and worthy of national park status, but the work that um, and time that I spent with the communities really galvanized the, the, um, the effort and, and really, made this so much more worthwhile at the end of the day and seeing the seeing the response to it post designation has been incredible as well so it's been a it's been incredibly uh enjoyable sometimes challenging but uh worthwhile endeavor for sure well i'll come back to that question because it seems like um what what you and others did was really to engage in a conversation that led eventually to the conclusion that we see um and and that's an important conversation to have i'll come back to you in just a minute to to talk about that but um perhaps now tim you could kind of talk a little bit about um how you um got started at the national park service and 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 what was the call that led you to katahdin woods and waters national monument uh, well, that's a bit of a long, convoluted story, but I'll try and pare it down here. Um, <laughs> I worked for the National Park Service, and I was a growing up. I spent. I'm from the West Coast. I'm from of all the rest of these people here. I'm from Hawaii, so uh, um, I grew up at hiking and using the the Sierras and the West West Coast Mountains, and so I started as a seasonal job. Um, the Park Service in 1967, and I've worked in uh, many remote parks. I worked in Yellowstone for 31 years. I lived in Alaska three times, um, back and forth, and we decided that we were going to retire, and so we bought a house in Bangalore because it was the furthest south and the warmest place we'd ever lived since we were married, so we moved south from, from Alaska, and I was working another job for the Park Service, and they said, we got a monument that might show up there, and you've worked in a lot of places like this in the remote areas. Um, and so I said, great. So uh, I just kind of fell into this and I, 2016, uh, when this, just before this happened, uh, Lucas came by and we made a trip and the rest is history. As Lindsay says, uh, we got told we were created one day and the park service said, you will be open the next. And we were. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, look, I'll come back to you to talk about what we might find um, if we were to visit um, ourselves in, in just a minute. But let's um, get Lucas, um, excuse me, Andrew Bossi into the conversation. Andrew is executive director of Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters. How did you come into this work? Well, um, like so many people, I it started with community. The community I grew up in was Caribou, Maine. Um, and I really got a sense of what it means to be part of, of um, a group of people that believe in something. When I was growing up, the base, Loring Air Force Base, closed, and um, I watched what, what economic toll that played in the region, including my parents losing their own business. Uh, I went to college down in southern Maine, uh, where I started to 
uh, hone my skills of community and running nonprofits, usually around social justice causes, political ballot initiatives inside the state house. But I'd find myself retreating to northern Maine, uh, to the rivers and the mountains. Uh, specifically, the first mountain I ever climbed was Katahdin, and the first river I ever paddled was the east branch of the Penobscot before it was a monument. So a few years back, uh, I decided to um, give back to that which I love so much and that renews my sense of wonder. Um, and the monument was designated and they were looking for an executive director and um, I was looking for them. Uh, and we, we hit off this relationship. So I've been here about three years and we are the nonprofit uh, partner um, with the Park Service to raise a margin of excellence to support our new public lands here in May. Great. Well, um, you're, you're tuned to talk of the towns this afternoon. Um, we're talking about Katahdin Woods and Waters. You've just heard from Andrew Bossy, uh, Lucas St. Clair, Tim Hudson, who's the superintendent there, uh, Jennifer Neptune, who's a Penobscot tribal member and artist, and Lindsay Hill Dowling, Downing, the owner of Mount Chase Lodge. I'm coming back to, to uh, Lucas to, to ask him about the conversation um, for four or more year conversation that led to creation of the National Monument. What was that conversation like for you? What were the some of the high points and, and as you say, some of the challenges? Well, you know, a lot of it was listening early on. You know, we, we conducted a study in 2012 in partnership with the Pew Charitable Trust. I guess it was in 2011. Um, we were trying to convince the Department of Interior, Interior to do a feasibility study to say, you know, does this monument meet the, or does this landscape meet the uh, criteria of a national park? And they came back after about six months of in-depth research, both on the ground and in the surrounding communities. And they said, yes, it, it does. It, it's a unique landscape there. It's not represented in the park service um, in this form. It has unique cultural attributes. It has unique geological attributes. Uh, however, uh, in order to become a national park or national monument, you have to have uh, local approval. And they said, you don't have, you don't have the support of, any of your members of Congress. You don't have support from any organization, conservation or otherwise. You know, it's, they're like, you know, Trout Unlimited, the Natural, Res Natural Resource Council of Maine. They're not supporting this effort. So while the landscape meets the criteria, you don't, you, you don't have the, the base of support. So that's where you need to start. And that became the focus. And it, it really became me going to a lot of these organizations and a lot of these community leaders and the congressional delegation and saying, why don't you support this? What is it that is missing that, you know, and, you know, we learned there was a lot of anxiety. I think what was probably the biggest thing that there was this, this region was going through a massive cultural shift from, uh, and a massive economic shift from the largest paper mills in the world in the 1980s to present day when those mills were just literally being torn down at, in, in front of the communities and no real plan for any economic revitalization. And uh, a lot of the, the kind of younger motivated people had, had left and they all were trying to figure out how to get back there, but what, what was there to go back to? And so, you know, as we sort of identified the, those anxieties, we started to think, okay, well, what, what could this, national park unit offer to help people get excited about their region again and and what what could 
how could it kind of be the, the uh, motivation for hope and, and, and um, how could people think about a change in the economic structure based on outdoor recreation as opposed to papermaking? And also just the fact that it's not a zero-sum game. That's what I really came to understand is that a lot of people thought, well, we're either going to be a tourism-based economy like Bar Harbor or we're going to be a forest products industry uh, community like we have been. But the reality is this is a giant landscape, very different than Bar Harbor. And, and we can have both here. We can have a 21st century forest products economy. There are literally millions of acres that are privately owned in the timber, bis- timber basket that are going to su- supply fiber to these mills. And they're going to make things uh, for a long, long, long time to come. And there will always be a need for, for timber fiber, whether it's for two by fours or whether it's for cross-laminated timber or whether it's for making guitar, you know, guitar bodies. There's a, there's a whole host of things that wood will be made from. And also we can have the outdoor recreation uh, economy. And that was really what was missing. And so it was a lot about kind of the education of what, a, what, a, what people are looking for, what it meant to b- build infrastructure and, and what na- the National Park Service does once they arrive. And a lot of folks were thinking the National Park Service was going to come and the federal government was going to take their land and take over. And, um, you know, obviously now that the, the Park Service has been there for, for s- several years, people are like, oh, well, you know, I guess they didn't take our land by eminent domain and we still are able to ride on those roads. And uh, you know, it, it was hard to convince folks of things that they had never seen before. And we, it was brand new to all of us. So, you know, at some point we all sort of had to say, all right, we're going to take a leap of faith here and work, work for the better good. Um, but ultimately it's starting to play out. Great. Well, Tim, what would we find if we were to visit today? First of all, how would we get there? Um, um, it's it's on the map. I remember the controversy of whether whether or not a previous governor was going to put signs on the road. We 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 now where the, know where it is. The signs on the road. What would we find when we get there? Not a whole lot different than you'd find when you used it years before. Some improvements, but that's part of what's going on here. It is not this massive change. Like Lucas said, it's not some kind of takeover. It's not a massive change. There's still logging roads. There's still, you still see what you're going to see. We're going to get more people uh, to come in and you've got a long, long history here as, and it, you know, I think some of the misconceptions are it's not past history. It's ongoing history. Well, the Wabanaki people of Penobscot have been here for 10 or 13,000 years, and uh, they've been here along with every piece that's come on, and they're still, the land is still being used by all the users it was before. It may not be right in the monument for some of the forest product industry. It's right there. There's that, that uh, legacy continues. You can see things go on uh, right as you get there. Uh, the signs, uh, the old signs, this is the first year the signs have been up, and we were hoping to see see what difference the sign makes, but I think COVID has kind of uh, made that a part of difficult uh, assessment. I can tell you that this year our visitation has gone up in the first, in June, which is not a very predictive month to tell you the truth, Um, but people are coming out on their own. Uh, They, the presence of of EFI before and of building the loop road, uh, that's where about 60% of the people come. And it's completely different, a different experience to come to the loop road, see the views, do the hikes, go up to Wasatica, and go up to the north end of the Matagamon where you're truly in a river environment. You're more in the uh, the user 
the user groups there with with the canoeing, the fishing. We allow we allow hunting uh, on one side of, of of the monument on the east side. Uh, snowmobiling in the winter, we get about. 15,000 sleds come through the monument now. I think a lot of people thought, oh, they're going to cut all that off. That's just not, that's not as that's on the main ITS going up that runs uh, right by Shin Pond. So um, that's, that's the other part is, is that we've got just some campsites we've been developing slowly, but part of this is to be integrated with the entire communities around here. And it's not about an island out here of a monument. It's one piece, as we've talked about. It is, so we do not plan to build, you know, in our, we've had many meetings with the public, about 13 public meetings uh, for information. We go to meet with, with people and to gather their input on what they like to see, what they've done. And part of this is that, there is no, quote, gateway communities. The whole area is a gateway to the area. And there's many things you can have a diverse a diverse time here from everything, you know, obviously not in the monument, from a very heavy, uh, you know, motor experience to any kind of recreation experience you have. And so staying here is that move around. You can stay in the north. You can stay in the south. Uh, we encourage you to do that. And we encourage you to come in and, and use it. You can obviously camp. But that's, that's, uh, that's the experience. It has a varied experience. Trying to set this up for the most varied experience for the most people while protecting the resource. The land is good at that. A lot of this land, a lot of the, uh, the old uh, access roads are on glacial till. They're very suitable for things like mountain biking, which we have a lot of, uh, that, that um, they don't, because of the soil, they're not susceptible to a lot of erosion, so it's quite easy to be able to do that and protect the resource, get people that, out there. And then we came to the realization, you know, straight off, is that two things is the meetings. We need to do an oral history, which we started in the area, because times are changing. And if you don't get that, you're going to lose it all from, from every perspective. The other is that what a resource we had here is the darkest skies in the eastern United Northeast United States and kind of unknown and it's not all about the monument the whole place is dark skies and so if you look at at uh, a group as as i think lindsay talked about was set up here with all the towns trying to work together which was a big step for the katahdin region by the way um uh in the in the manual of the gazetteer which got how we're going to improve the entire area and we're all part of it the dark sky shows up with 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 the towns with the cities in here at as well. And uh, as Andy said, we became the International Dark Sky Sanctuary. There's only like 12 of them in the world, 12 or 14 of them in the world. There's only a couple of them, only one other National Park Service area. So these are some of the darkest skies around. And uh, that, uh, we plan to keep it that way. Right. And so there's not going to be big developers, not going to be a lot of lights. In fact, is, uh, <laughs> I have to tell the story in Lucas and we first started on this because they were instrumental in it. They told him to count the light bulbs, and he told them there was like six, and they didn't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> and we got rid of those six, I think. So anyway, that's uh, that's 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 what that's some of the things that you can do. You can have your own experience, and so we get a lot of users. The trails are well set up. You know, in this in this day of COVID, because of those, a lot of them are on old access spots that are grown over you can stay six feet apart quite easily and so um it's been uh it's just growing slowly we've gone we were up to about twenty five thousand visitors a summer 
And when we started in 2016, data wasn't as good, but we were probably at 10,000. Okay, great. Well, let me go um, now to um, uh, Lindsay. Um, one of the questions I asked is, where do you stay? And, and uh, Tim said, well, you can camp in the National Monument, but um, if people want a, a more genteel experience, they're going to go to places um, like um, Mount Chase Lodge. Uh, what's What's been the reaction um, to those of you in the lodging uh, business and how lodging has been affected uh, by the creation of the monument? Lindsay? You know, it's funny. I, I talk with uh, my husband a lot about this, how, like, I remember as a kid, and, of course, as a kid, your memories are a little skewed and, and you don't necessarily – remember things accurately, but um, business wasn't like it is now when I was a kid, you know. Um, summer visitors were very few when I was younger, and we focused a lot on, you know, cheap lodging for big groups. Um, and now what we're seeing is, and again, COVID is, COVID is making things a little different, but we're getting a lot of main visitors this year every weekend. Um, and, and what my business looks like is we are full on the weekends, full of main families, and we are getting the occasional out-of-staters who are, who are following the precautions of being tested and whatnot. Um, but 80% of our visitors this summer are all Mainers who are coming up saying, hey, we've, we've heard a lot of things going on in the Katahdin region. We want to check out the National Monument. We want to go to Baxter State Park. Um, and so we're, we're busy and people are coming up here. They're socially distancing in their cabins. Um, but when they get here, we have, so we have five private cabins and then, and then some rooms upstairs in our main lodge. Um, and it's a very backwards experience. Like you, you don't worry about crowds of people up here. Uh, you can come check into your cabin, have dinner delivered to you and then go off into the monument where there are very few people. And, and, um, People are coming up and they're spending the day at the north end. Uh, maybe they're going fishing on the north end and then they're going into Baxter State Park for an afternoon. Or maybe they're the kind of folks that want to that want to ride the dirt roads and, and uh, get up on the loop road where they get some really great views of Mount Katahdin. But at the end of the day, they can come back and sleep in a sleep in a comfortable bed. They can listen to the frogs in the pond without being next to the frogs in the pond. Um, <laughs> They don't have to be swiping at the bugs and building a campfire to keep keep their water boiled. You know, they we, we offer the creature comforts of of beds and and uh, comforts without. You can be in the woods without being in the woods, which I think is the experience that a lot of people really are are looking for. You know, as as great as it, great as it is to get out camping on the monument, so it takes a certain kind of person and a lot of planning to get out and go camping on the monument. So um, we're within probably a 25 minute ride of the North gate um, up at Matagammon and probably about an hour, hour and 10 minute ride from the start of the loop road. Um, so we're in a really great spot where people can go either way. Um, Good. And, uh, and, and I, I feel really great about the fact that so many Mainers are coming up here to check it out this year because uh, they don't, they feel safest, you know, yeah. visiting, visiting. With Great. The, well, I just want to remind you. We have this. 
I just want, want to remind listeners that are tuned to Talk of the Towns um, here this afternoon. Um, you've just heard from uh, Lindsay Hill Downing, the owner of Mount Chase Lodge in Mount Chase, Maine. Uh, Tim Hudson is the uh, uh, park superintendent. Um, Lucas St. Clair is the founder and, and president of Elliottsville uh, Foundation, a big supporter of the, of the National Monument. Andrew Bossy, Executive Director of Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters, and Jennifer Neptune, who's a Penobscot tribal representative, um, a member of that tribe and works for the tribe. Um, Jennifer, I want to come back to you. Uh, Tim just mentioned the, the notion that one of the, the outcomes of the community meetings was an emphasis on collecting oral histories. And I know that you've been long interested in kind of um, kind of protecting culture, preserving culture of, of your own people. Um, what would that what would that look like for you and, and members of um, the Penobscot tribe or others? What would that kind of protection of culture look like um, uh, through the, the National Monument? So for us, um, we have a lot of tribal stories that take place up there, some really ancient stories. And so, um, you know, preserving those and place names. So a lot of the place names up there are Penobscot in the language and researching those has been interesting. A long history of guiding in that area by Penobscot guides and, you know, finding those stories and, and just making sure that um, you know, our voices there and heard mm. in, the, in the monument. Any particular um, story that, uh, that you, comes to mind that you could tell um, uh, briefly about what, what, um, how significant this area is? Um, uh, we've probably all heard um, reference to Gluskat um, and Katahdin. Do you want to tell a little bit of that story for our listeners? Yeah, there's so many. It's hard to <laughs> pick just one, but... Um, one that you might find interesting is um, Wasada Cook Stream. In our language, that means there's a couple of different translations of it. One is place where you spear fish by torchlight, and one is river of light. And originally, the East Branch, that was the name for the East Branch. The entire East Branch was the Wasada Cook. And it's only, you know, since non-Native people have been making sure. maps that that little section got that name um but that was a a major fishing spot for spearing salmon salmon before the dams went way up around katahdin and it was a really important place and so for me like paddling um when I, when i've paddled it the way the different um there's so many different ways that the water moves through that section. There's rapids, there's flat sections. It's just really beautiful and a lot of different movement of the water, but always it's sparkling in this really neat way. I don't know if it's the reflection because the trees are right there or the cliffs sometimes, but it struck me as I paddle it that I can see why this is called the river of light because it's always just sparkling and shining and beautiful. Mm, well, thank you, and, and that will, I'm sure, entice um, some some new visitors to go there because they want to experience the river right. of light. And even like Henry David Thoreau, like Joe Polis, who was Penobscot from Indian Island, he was his guide in 1857, and um, Thoreau writes about the East Branch and his journey through there. So a lot of history and so yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, thank you for sharing. Um, um, Andrew, uh, coming back to you, um, uh, the, the role of uh, Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters is to support um, what's going on by the Park Service. Um, uh, talk about some of the work that you've accomplished so far. What are the specific projects that you've been involved in? Great. So we've been around for um, as long as the monument has. Uh, we were incorporated shortly after the monument's designation at the beginning of 2017. The monument was designated in 2016. And as you said, Ron, we are a partner. We, what we aim to do is raise a margin of excellence to support our park. And there's basically three different, we've categorized our work into three different ways. Um, early in our development. One is supporting visitation. So every year we release the Loop Road interpretive map. We work with the Park Service to get that at visitor contact stations and Patton and the Millinocket uh, and up and down the highway. So as folks are coming, they have resources to help them understand what they're seeing when they do, uh, as one of our volunteers calls it, the tour de loop um, in the monument. We also uh, have worked with uh, Cartographers on the map adventures map that is the first recreational map of the monument. We have a bird checklist for those uh, folks that like to view our uh, feathered friends uh, and a night sky guide uh, that can kind of hit on some of what Tim talked about with the exceptionally dark skies. So visitation is a big part of what we support. The other, the other aspect of our work is infrastructure. Um, and so how do we support um, making sure that visitors, when they get to the park, have uh, facilities? So we've been working with the Park Service uh, early on in re, um, kind of designing and making more accessible the kind of crown jewel of the Loop Road, which is called the Overlook. It's at mile 6.4, and it has this incredible view of, um, of the Katahdin Mastiff and um, what we've been doing is working with the Park Service to improve that experience there, have a covered area, um, better access to the Portage on, um, and maybe even some trails around there, but also working on improving the number of campsites in the monument uh, so folks, especially along the river, can be there. And the third area of our work is really embedded into our mission here at Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters is not only the monument, the national monument, but also the communities that surround it. And so revitalization of those communities is really important uh, in the genesis of this monument and it's in the DNA of our friends group, so to speak. And so the primary way we do this is through youth programs. We have a um, program called the Katahdin Learning Project which is a place-based education um, initiative uh, that works with local schools. It's a grassroots initiative where teachers and administrators and, and local organizations work together to create opportunities for our young people to get out and learn from um, nature and their communities and work on projects that can improve their lives. We also have um, not one, but now two different youth conservation crews. Mm. We work with the Friends of Baxter State Park um, to establish um, a conservation corps uh, called the Baxter Youth Conservation Corps coming into the monument for a week. Unfortunately, they can't do it this year because of COVID. But we also are working with another group uh, called Wabanaki Ways. And so there are four um, Wabanaki students that have joined us this summer working 10 weeks in the monument to do um, trail improvements and improvements to campsites as well as learning 
uh, more about this awesome place. So these youth programs are really um, one way that we feel like we can um, uh, help share uh, kind of the wealth of this monument and really give back. And so those are, those are the three primary areas that we work on right now um, and more, more to come. Great. Um, Tim, how, how is, how is the, uh, the, the monument staffed besides yourself? Um, who else um, works there? What kind of staff do you have? Well, uh, I was the staff for quite a while. It took a while <laughs> to get into the budget system. And if it hadn't been for uh, the friends helping and uh, EFI's support. Uh, but up until last November, I was the only employee, permanent employee. And now we have two of us, soon to be three. I was in the Chief of Interpretation, which uh, we've reached out into the, the monument more for some interpretation uh, uh, to let people know what's what's going on. We've started to do some programs, a couple of night sky uh, short sh pieces uh, with a movable telescope. Um, we uh, have a maintenance worker who's been here every year, and he is out on the roads and the trails a lot. We've made a huge a huge effort to replace old culverts over streams with bridges so for salmon passage we worked really hard we put it we put about five bridges in this year uh over 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 the streams so um and then we've got a chief of interpretation starting so we'll have more resources next year uh and uh that's 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 the start. Start up parks, go slowly. Uh, it all depends on, on budget. So we took us a couple of years to even get into the budget cycle. So sure. uh, this is a very unusual where you go from zero to wide open in one day. Most new monuments and new parks take some of the ones that were established about the same time as up have hardly gotten open. Mm -hmm. So that, and that's a credit to, uh, to Lucas and everybody else working together to make this happen. So it was fairly, fairly seamless. I think that was one of the big things that happened with the people is that there was not this big change. Yeah. Lucas, I think that's a really important aspect of, of how um, the monument got started. I think um, you would say that it was really important to start demonstrating um, the, the, um, uh, the vision um, early on and, and to get it um, up and running. So the creation of the Loop Road and, and the support that you've given, your foundation has given, has really been important. Um, where, where do you think that things are now? You've, you've mentioned the, the, uh, the coexistence of a, a timber products industry and a recreational um, pursuit. Where do things stand now, do you, do you suppose? Well, you know, it's, I think this is going to be a work in progress for, for a long time as the region evolves. Um, but I, I certainly see some really promising things happening. The visitor experience is something that we are really focused on. And when I say we, I mean, the part, the, I'm on the board of the Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters and, and as an organization, when we're out fundraising and 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 trying to uh, you know cultivate new donors and and partners, we talk about enhancing the visitor experience and and the, there's a whole host of opportunities, and I think they really rely around or kind of focus around orientation and education. We want people when they get here to understand why they're here, and uh, you know Tim can attest to this and and has told me every park he works in when people show up at. The you know visitor contact areas. They say, "What am I supposed to do now?" Which is surprising for those of us who go out and spend a lot of time in parks. But 
general public, they show up and they have no idea what to do, what to see. And so we need to, we need to orient them to the landscape and say, you know, there are all these opportunities. So we need places for, for that orientation to happen. And then, and the education is also incredibly important. You know, there are, there are some, these, these rich indigenous stories on this landscape that we and the park service need to work in, in tandem to, to uh, help elevate. So people understand that, this isn't something that, you know, our family or the friends group to sort of put on the map one day, but this has been, this is the homeland to uh, a, a group of people that have been here for thousands of years. And that is an incredibly important story and makes the, makes a visitor experience much more enhanced when they understand that, that component to it. And so that's really where we're focusing now is, is working on that orientation education in, to enhance the visitor experience. And then, you know, doing a lot of work in the, in the community as well. I, and, and the signs obviously were kind of a point of confrontation about whether or not they go up or not, but you know, you can make a really great place for re outdoor recreation and education, but if you don't have the signs and marketing and the community talking about it, it's, it's not going to get visited. You know, it's like putting a billboard in a basement is what I always joke about. You know, it's this really great place, but if no one sees it, does it really matter? So we're working a lot with the community and the region and the county and the state to enhance uh, the, the understanding uh, and, and, um, and sort of broadcasting more widely that this is an opportunity for visitors to come and, and experience. And, uh, you know, over, you know, Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most visited national parks in the country, but it's been around for 104 years. So uh, hopefully 100, 100 years from now, we will we'll have a similar type of enthusiasm. Uh, but it, to Tim's point, I think it's gonna happen a lot faster. And, yeah. and clearly what we've seen right now in the time of COVID is just how nature has been a, tonic for so many people is they're stuck indoors and they're in close proximity with their family that um, is sometimes very great but we all need our space and we're communicating over these new virtual platforms and it's it's draining it's have it's taking a psychological toll on all of us and certainly for me and 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 a lot of people that I'm talking with that ton the tonic the the antidote for for that kind of psychological disruption is to get outside and we need more places for folks to get outside and we need more infrastructure for, for people to feel safe when they go outside. And I think that's why Katahdin Woods and Waters has been so popular this year. And I think that's why it'll be so popular uh, you know, in, into the future. One of the things we talked about just before we started recording was the notion that um, as you look at um, this monument and the other um, preserved lands, um, we're really doing something um, as a, as a, as a uh, uh, state and as a nation to talk about um, an ecosystem and diversity within that ecosystem. Lucas, could you start our conversation about what the, the monument can do um, over time? Sure. And there's a, there's a point on a hike up Barnard Mountain uh, on the north side of the mountain where there's a very distinct line where the northern hardwood forest turns to a more boreal forest and you can stand in this spot where the transition happens and that's you know as the planet gets warmer and species have to adapt to a warming climate uh, they can either go north in latitude in the northern hemisphere or they can go up in elevation to get back to a more to a to an ecosystem that they're more comfortable with 
And as they do that, they can evolve to the warming and the and the 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 weather disruption and and the variance that we're we're going to experience more and more of this variance. And so landscapes that are have low river valleys and high alpine areas that are close together that are protected allow for the adaptation of species. And that's not just trees. Uh, and trees do migrate, despite the way we think about them. Um, forests are are pretty adaptive. Uh, uh, pretty adaptive places, but you know, trees are going to move uphill. Species of all types are going to move uphill, and the more that more of this landscape that we have protected, the more opportunity we have to be resilient in in the face of climate change. And the thing that's so unique about the Katahdin Woods and Waters is that it's smack dab in the middle of this vast protected area from the Penobscot lands on in Matagammon through Baxter State Park, the Nature Conservancy, the Forest Society of Maine, the Appalachian Trail, it really stretches down through the 100-mile wilderness. And there's, there's you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres that are being stewarded for long-term conservation. And so when you think about the resiliency that this landscape will have, Katahdin Woods and Waters plays, plays a uh, a, a piece of it, but it's it's part of this much larger landscape that we are so fortunate to be uh, to have in our state. And you know, as Tim said, it's very hard to predict what will be the future, but we know we're going to be much resi- more resilient into the future because of it. Mm. Uh, Jennifer, can I come to you and, and ask about this notion of an ecosystem? You and and Wabanaki people have been. Um, uh, again, stewards and and participants in an ecosystem for so many generations. Um, What's your perspective now um, as you think about preserved land? And again, it's it's the the work that the Penobscot tribe is doing, but also these others. How do you um, think about preserved lands in this way? I think it's really important that land is preserved. So animals and plants have a place to do that work and to survive. But as um, indigenous people, I mean, we can give you the long-term view because we've been here from, you know, tundra to the change to a forest and, you know, all the changes that have happened since deglaciation. And we still have stories that date that far back and, and language that goes that far back. And people are adaptable and can change and can learn and can adapt. And so, you know, this is a story that's been happening, you know, for at least 15,000 years here um, with massive climate changes and changes in the landscape and the trees and the flora and the fauna and the animals. And, um, you know, I think humans are smart enough to figure it out. We figured it out for over 20,000 years. And I know that all of us together can figure out a way to adapt um, to these changes and hopefully mitigate some of it. Great. Um, so I just want to remind um, listeners they're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're having a wonderful conversation about the, the present and future of Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument with our guests, uh, Jennifer Neptune, Lindsay Hill Downing, Tim Hudson, 
um, Andrew Bossi and Lucas St. Clair. Um, we've got uh, about uh, 10 or so minutes left, and I want to ask if anyone thinks about some of the challenges that you face, and then we'll uh, wrap up with um, some of your hopes uh, for the future. But uh, um, Andrew, perhaps starting with you, what, what are some of the challenges? You've, you've mentioned your focus as, as a friends group. What are some of the challenges you face as a friends group? Is it just raising money, or is it something broader than that? Well, I think what we're doing here is standing up not only a new unit of the National Park Service, but also a new friends group. And so startups have very unique needs, as Tim can attest to, you know, safety of the visitors is paramount as well as protecting natural resources. And so I think the the challenge that I've experienced in, in kind of getting this, this philanthropic community off the ground is really about like, how do you put the pieces together? We are proud to be 800 members strong at this point. Um, and so I, I like to fundraise. It's uh, kind of what I do. Um, but it's also important to acknowledge that here in Maine, we've had two parks previous to this that were born out of full-on philanthropy. And that word means love of humankind generally. Acadia National Park on our coastline and Baxter State Park were both given by private individuals to, to um, governments um, to, to move forward. And what Lucas and his family has done here is done that again a third time. And this, doesn't, this may seem like the normal type of behavior in Maine, but it is unique in the national landscape. Many parks are not formed in this way. It's about taking government land or state-owned land and turning, opening them up as parks. Um, so this idea that um, what Lucas and his mom, Roxanne, started uh, was this community of philanthropy. What we do at Friends is through our membership and through donations and events, we are maximizing that. And as we think about economic revitalization, protection of resources, opportunities for our youth, we do need an entire community to come together and rally around this. We're 800 members strong right now and growing. Uh, we have more members officially than there are culverts in the park at this point. So <laughs> that's a fun statistic to have. But if you um, don't know much about us and you want to get in on the ground floor of creating a new spectacular park, uh, you can check us out at friendsofkww.org um, and become a member there. Every first time new member gets uh, a package that includes uh, recreation maps in it and, and other resources to help you um, plan your first trip and experience um, this incredible outdoor landscape. Lindsay, what, what, as, a, as a, an entrepreneur, um, and an entrepreneur who really created a business plan based on um, the presence of the National Monument and other uh, protected lands for recreation, what are some of the challenges you see for the region um, as you look ahead? Well, um, I think I think the biggest challenge is kind of keeping the momentum with the locals, um, myself included. Like when I moved up here, I went to every single meeting. I joined as many different boards as I could, and uh, I was I was very involved in like in the future planning of the town. Um, and we've continued our the Katahdin region has continued to work really hard together. Um, to, to develop these plans on making this region visitor friendly and in a, in a great tourism destination for people. But it's, 
it's challenging to keep up that forward momentum and enthusiasm, um, especially when you don't see results right away. Um, so keeping the small groups that, uh, the Catan Gazetteer, for instance, was a, a great project and it's been, it's been a, I'm not even sure, maybe two years in the making of this Gazetteer. And now we're finally uh, starting to see these little projects pan out, but it certainly hasn't been something that, um, that we saw direct instant gratification for. So it's, um, it is a challenge to keep people active and involved and, and uh, keeping the community sort of the focus. Um, but we're really making leaps and bounds and, and the communities have come together in such a huge way. And every day I'm hearing of different, different things that are going on in different communities and grants that we've, different towns have gotten. Um, so it's, it's really, it's a cool thing to be a part of, but we have to remember that we got to keep the forward momentum and keep, keep being excited. And especially during COVID that sort of put a damper on everybody. Um, as far as planning and just being able to take care of your basic needs. So, um, yeah, we're just, we just all have to keep, keep remembering that this place is so special and, um, we need to work together to keep it that way. Tim, I'm going to come back to you, Tim Hudson. What are some of the challenges you think as the, as the park superintendent, what, what, what uh, will you be working on in the next few years? Well, the biggest thing is everybody's touched on it is uh, is keeping this, protecting this resource, allowing people to come in and use it, and ex and explaining the history, the geology, and the and the wonderful area that we have. You know, frankly, uh, without changing it, letting it grow, letting it change on its own, uh, I think I think it's maybe a little bit hard to put down. You don't want to take giant steps and go backwards. And so we've been really focusing on moving things forward at one time, uh, keeping things and move, moving steps and explaining to people that this is not, I think one of the biggest challenges we have explained to people that this is not something that's all history and things happen before they're still going on. And I, and that's one of the perceptions that we get is, Oh, somebody was here and now they're gone. That's not the case. Not the case with Penobscot. It's not the case with the timber industry. You can see it here, and people are using this land continuously. And we need to keep it into a spot where it is usable and the resource uh, is protected. So, I, I, one of the things we have to say that we talk about is, oh, you don't put every idea into place until you figure it out where you're going in the long term, or else you've got to. You you you'll be sorry. So I think the challenge is people understanding that this is a progression. You have an overall goal to make this a quality place. It is not going to be one big thing that happens and then you go away. And so, and you listen to the community. You listen to the people who use the land. That that is what we're really striving to do. Uh, I think I think Jennifer hit on it with with the stories as to tie that together to the use that we've had, what's happened, and tie that and make a bridge on what's happened, continues to happen over time, is that's, that's one of the challenges that we're working on. Good. And Tim, you've just expressed the hopes as well. So if in the last five minutes or so, um, could, we, could we get some of your hopes? Uh, Jennifer, what, what do you hope for the future of Katahdin Woods and Waters as a, as a national monument and the, the region that it, it's supporting? 
I hope that it remains, you know, as beautiful and as special as it has been for thousands of years to us and that people um, come to love it and care for it in the way that we have and continue to do. It's a magical, beautiful place. It's one of the most beautiful places in the state. And so I hope that people can see that, you know, with their hearts and, and that love for that place can lead to some protections for other places too. Mm. Uh, Lucas St. Clair, uh, what are your hopes in the last couple of minutes that we have? Um, you, you were part of the, the, the origins of, of this, um, this story that's unfolding. What are your hopes for the future? Well, similar to what Jennifer said, you know, I hope people are able, more and more people are able to experience this place and understand its beauty and, and really the subtle beauty of it, which I think is uh, something that takes a lot of attention and focus. And that's, you know, that's really the thing that's, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about seeing more of. Great. Thank you so much to all of you. We've come to the end of an hour. Um, happened very fast. Be sure and join us from four to five on the second Wednesday afternoon of each month for Talk of the Towns. Podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the WERU website. If you have comments or suggestions for topics, please email us at news at weru.org. And stay tuned, um, tune in for our companion program, Coastal Conversations with Natalie Springle of Maine Sea Grant from four to five on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks so much to our guests in the studio, Lucas St. Clair, uh, founder and president of Elliottsville Foundation, Andrew Bossy, executive director of Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters, Tim Hudson, uh, the Woods and Waters Park Superintendent, Lindsay Hill Downing, owner of Mount Chase Lodge in Mount Chase, and Jennifer Neptune, a tribal um, member, Penobscot tribal member, artist, and big supporter of, of what's going on there. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for helping engineer our program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and Jazz Straight Ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon. <laughs>